Welcome to the Modern Mobility Podcast, brought to you by Modern Mobility Partners. This podcast is for transportation planners and enthusiasts who want to learn practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges. And now, here are your co-hosts, certified transportation planners, national experts, and thought leaders, Kelly Kemp and Kirsten Moat. Welcome, welcome, welcome to episode six of the Modern Mobility Podcast. I am Kelly Kemp. And I'm Kirsten Moat. And we are your co-hosts joined by our special guest, Amber Berg of Modern Mobility Partners. Welcome, Amber. Thanks for having me. (laughs) In today's episode, we're going to go through key takeaways for transportation planners to know about the Infrastructure Investment and Jobs Act, also known as IIJA. So, A lot of people have been interested in knowing more about this bill that was recently signed into law. The United States Department of Transportation is still operating on the old FAST Act funds, which was the previous transportation bill or infrastructure bill through February 2022. We're recording now on January 27th of 2022. So we got about one month left of FAST Act funds, and then we switch over to IIJA. So. All that to say, they haven't quite released the notice of funding opportunities yet for the new programs for IIJA, but those will be coming very soon, some sooner than others. Actually, I believe the raise NOFO is coming out in days. But anyway, so Amber and others at what we affectionately call the Mod Mob, that's that's our little nickname that we call ourselves (laughs) at Modern Mobility Partners. Or maybe what I just, maybe it's just me. Is it really just me that calls it? It's not just you. It's not just you. (laughs) And and just a side note, when Jen and I were starting the firm a little more than four years ago, I even joked around and said, we could call ourselves the Mod Mob. And we're like, no, no, we could never do that. And here we are, we're doing it ourselves. So anyway, um, moving on. So, you know, Amber has been really hard at work going through and combing through all of the many, many pages of IIJA, the Infrastructure and Investment Jobs Act, probably more so than she cares to admit, and <laughs> and really doing a deep dive on distilling the information in the bill regarding the transportation programs, both new and old, and really putting it into a simple way we can all digest. And so... We're brought here here today to really step through key takeaways for transportation planners from the bill hot off the presses. Um, so, Amber, what was your experience like going through this massive bill? <laughs> um, overwhelming. It's just it's I'm sure for anyone like who combing through legislature is not their day to day job. It's so big. There's so much to go through. Um it's a lot. Of, it's a big learning curve. It's also been a little bit uh, of a positive experience because there's a lot of new programs, new competitive considerations that show we're shifting towards a more progressive way of doing things here in the country with transportation. So, yeah, I'd agree. She said positive with such hesitancy. She's like, <laughs> positive? <laughs> <laughs> well, also, like, Personally, there are complex feelings, but I think it's it's a step in the right direction. Um, also, there feelings. were a lot. Of, I love it. There's an emphasis 
well, we can dive into this more in a minute. But yeah, there's an emphasis on equity, an emphasis on sustainability, innovations, not just doing things the way we've always been doing them. Um, so that's really positive to see, even if um, they're not as big of leaps as some people might want. Yeah, I see. Okay. Yeah. Fair. Very fair. I mentioned earlier that we've got several notices of funding opportunities for these new discretionary grant programs as a result of IIJA coming out soon. Um, like I said, I think the raise, um, NOFOs actually, and we call the notice of funding opportunity NOFO, by the way. So you'll pick up on that later. Um, the raise one's actually supposed to come out within the next three days, uh, and then several more shortly thereafter. So we're looking forward to seeing what comes out of those as well and what may be different from before as to how they are going to be evaluating projects for funding. Yeah. So let's, uh, let's jump right in and let's get into a little bit of background. And Amber, uh, please feel free to interrupt me and correct me as I'm going through this because I'm going based off of what I remember, but you are clearly better educated in this realm. Uh, so what is the IIJA? So it is the federal infrastructure bill um, that was passed in November of 2021. Uh, it is different from the Build Back Better. And Amber, can you give a brief description about the Build Back Better? Yes. So there's two Build Back Betters. One of them was an EDA program that was passed last like May, I want to say. So that's completely separate. And then there's also another Build Back Better bill um, that I think is focused on more social infrastructure. So like housing and whatnot. Um, a lot of people have been pushing for that. But just to clarify, that's completely separate from the infrastructure bill. Um, some people have kind of gotten these conflated because there are some issues that are being tackled with both the infrastructure bill and the Build Back Better. And I don't think the Build Back Better has been passed yet. But yeah, so the infrastructure that we're talking about today is primarily a reauthorization of the FAST Act, but then it also, um, the part that makes it confusing is that it also touches on other aspects of infrastructure like broadband and electricity, and those aspects we're not going to talk about today. And Amber, real quick for our, our one listener, can you tell, <laughs> can you tell people what, when you said EDA for Build Back Better, what that is, EDA, the acronym? Yes, EDA is the Economic Development Administration. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so um, so as Amber mentioned, this infrastructure bill goes beyond just transportation infrastructure and encompasses a lot of different types of infrastructure like broadband. Um, but the transportation portion of this bill is the reauthorization uh, of funding. Um, and replaces the FAST Act that um, was in place from 2016 through 2021, but got an extension. As we mentioned, the funding will go through February of this year. Um, so comparing it to the FAST Act, overall, there is substantially more funding in this infrastructure bill for transportation than there was in the FAST Act, which is really positive. Um, and not only is there more funding through these new discretionary grant programs, but there's also more formula funding. Um, and I think that goes across all states, but I know especially for Georgia, it's uh, quite quite a bump in the federal funding, which is great. Yeah. And a significant increase in transit funding as well. Very good point. Yes. 
Yeah, so uh, definitely more of a multimodal focus, um, and I think we'll we'll get into that a little bit more as we go along. The other major focused areas um, for these programs is they really want to be equitable in how they're funding projects. Um, we've hit on this in a couple episodes so far this season. We talk about the Justice 40 program where they're designating 40% of funding into um, low-income, minority, and otherwise disproportionately disadvantaged areas. So that's just a little bit about the background. So a couple highlights that I think Amber's going to touch on. Um, so in this bill, we've got more than a dozen new surface transportation programs. The priorities are definitely shifting. There's there's more of a focus, like I said, on equity and investing in underserved communities, um, more of a focus on innovation and technology. Uh, you hear the buzzword sustainability. So that's all throughout this bill. Um, we talked about the multimodal connections and having more of an emphasis on transit and even bike, bicycle and pedestrian infrastructure. And then this other buzzword that we call resilience. Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about that later. later. So continuing from the FAST Act, especially with the grant programs, they're really looking for close to shovel-ready projects, but also projects that are supported by plans and studies. And that's where we come in as transportation planners, making sure that we have solid plans and studies that encompass uh, the different components that they're looking for in these funding programs up front before they even get into the design phases. Um, so, Amber, let's and, go ahead and... Oh, yes. Oh, I'm sorry to interrupt. <laughs> so rudely interrupted. I know. I'm going <laughs> off script. Um, one thing I just wanted to add, when we say shovel-ready projects, we're talking about pro transportation projects um, you know, so it could be, uh, you know, bike and pedestrian facilities, a transit project, you know, a roadway project, like a widening or a new pro new roadway, um, you know, safety improvement project, all kinds of different things. So those are the types of projects we're talking about. And when we say shovel ready, what we mean is that they're ready to go to construction. There is a lot of work that a lot of people do not realize has to go into a project before it can actually start construction. And that could include, you know, the design of the project. So the engineering design, there may need to be property that needs to be purchased um, for right-of-way in order to complete the project. Um, there could be environmental clearances that have to be done and permitting. So there's a lot of work that has to be done before it gets approved for construction. So with a lot of the discretionary grant programs, they want to be able to implement the projects faster and so, and, you know, kind of show that progress. And so they're going to want projects that are almost ready to go to construction and they just need the money to do it. Yeah. And, and that's, that's not to say that every program has to have shovel ready projects. Right. There is money in this bill for planning and design, mm -hmm. you know, especially the formula programs where you can use that funding for those pre-construction activities. Uh, but the discretionary programs, some may have a set aside for planning funding. Um, but most, when you talk about the capital, uh, capital funding for the actual infrastructure 
piece, that construction piece, yeah, they definitely want it close to being ready for construction. Okay, back to where we were. Um, Amber, let's go ahead and jump into these major takeaways. So I'm going to let you take it from here. Okay, great. Thank you. Um, So first, it makes sense to start with talking about the formula programs. Most of these are highway trust fund programs, and a lot of these are programs that are already existing, like the National Highway Performance Program, Highway Safety Improvement, and so on. There's not a lot of changes to these programs. For the most part, it's increased funding, but there are a couple caveats or additional eligibilities for these programs. So, for example, the National Highway Performance Program, which I can't remember for sure, but it's one of the larger formula programs. The biggest change for that program through this bill is that it adds increase the resiliency of the national highway system to mitigate the cost of damages to its program purposes, to its program purpose. So, so Amber, when you say resiliency, you know, that can be defined so many different ways. And this constantly comes up in our planning space. So when we're talking about resiliency, how are we defining that? And does that apply to, say, just natural disasters or does that include other stuff? I think resiliency is probably one of the better defined terms within this bill. And specifically with regard to the National Highway Performance Program, they do define it as in regard to natural disasters, extreme weather events, um, and climate change. They specifically call out the change in climate. Okay. And they specifically call out um, wanting to increase the resiliency of the infrastructure itself, so increase its longevity, but they also talk about mitigating the cost of damages, so not having to do repairs over and over due to these weather events. Okay, that's helpful. Thank you. Mm-hmm. And then the next program that I want to talk about is the Highway Safety Improvement Program. This one, for me personally, I think has some of the most exciting changes because this one is making safety broader to focus on, to have a more multimodal focus. So within the IAJA, Highway Safety Improvement Program now emphasizes vulnerable or non-motorized road users. So basically, that's anyone on the transportation system who's not um, a driver or passenger in a personal vehicle. And if I could just add something, you know, the feds also just recently released the new planning emphasis areas to the DOTs and the metropolitan planning organizations. And um, not only was equity a big piece of that, but safety and complete streets really focusing on bicycle and pedestrian safety. Um, and so when these metropolitan planning organizations have to plan their long range plan for transportation projects, and as part of that, they're identifying new projects, they're going to be looking at this a lot more closely and that'll align better with the funding availability later. So that's exciting to see as well. Yes, definitely. Um, cause transportation is all about all, everyone who's on the system, um, all modes. Yeah. And. Within this program, it now also requires uh, each state to create a vulnerable road user safety assessment. So they're requiring all states now to look at um, bicyclists and pedestrians. And there's also now a 15% rule where if a state has 15% of its roadway fatalities 
are made up of those vulnerable or non-motorized road users, then they have to dedicate at least 15% of their highway safety improvement program funds towards improvements for vulnerable road users. And I think, I don't know for sure, but I think Georgia is one of those states that falls into that based on existing data. Interesting. And I think that ties back also to the previous episode we just recorded, Kirsten, on integrating equity and safety planning and engineering. And we talked a lot about that as well. And and there are some users that are more vulnerable than others. So it's, it's a very interesting topic. And I'm glad to see that they are applying more funding to that. Yeah, see, we planned all these out. We we knew that there were going to be threads going through on yeah, each of these a, episodes. There's a thing. They're all going to be connected. Yeah. yeah, there's a method to the madness, believe it or not. <laughs> Something else I didn't have in the notes here is that also the bill requires a um a safe systems approach through through using this uh, state vulnerable road user safety assessment, and they defined that within the bill. And I can't remember the definition off the top of my head, but it's just another instance of where they're they're making progressive changes on how we think about safety in regard to the transportation system. So that's really great. The next program, which is a subset of the Highway Safety Improvement Program, is the Railway Highway Crossings Program. And it eliminates the protective devices set aside. So before, I believe it was 50% of this program's fund had to go towards protective devices. So that's like the arms that come down whenever Mm -hmm. you have to stop at a railroad crossing and signage and things like that. And for 50% of the program funds to go towards that, that's like a lot of money just going towards signage. Mm -hmm. And then this, now the IIJA also increases the incentive for closing public railway highway crossings. So Amber, what do you mean by incentive? So through this program, public entities can um, be incentivized to, like they can receive an incentive from the state DOT, I believe. They can receive a payment to close an at-grade railway highway crossing. However, before this new infrastructure bill, that incentive was only $7,500, which I had to reread wow. that over and over. Like, trying to incentivize a public entity to do anything for $7,000. <laughs> and that's Jeez. nothing against public entities, but like, that's not a lot of money. Yeah. And and can I just interject here that a lot, a lot of folks in um, the community have no idea how much infrastructure costs. And we're talking millions and millions and millions of dollars. Like people got no clue how much it costs. And so $7,500, like that's such a drop. It's like negligible. That's not even worth mentioning, you know, right? you know, that's nothing. Um, I have a, at some point we're going to let you continue on here, Amber, but I have another question. <laughs> um, okay. With this, well, first of all, let me clarify what act grade means when we're talking about at-grade railroad crossings. And so what we mean by at-grade means that there are passenger vehicles or pedestrians or cyclists that come into conflict with trains at train crossings. They're at the same level. They're not separated by a bridge, right, or a tunnel. So um, there's, as a result, there's the potential for a train to hit a vehicle or a pedestrian or cyclist or what have you. So 
And it does happen. It's very unfortunate. So um, just wanted to explain what that is out there. But I guess, and this is more of a thought to ponder, not necessarily a question or an observation maybe, but if they're going to incentivize closing of these at-grade railroad crossings, I guess there's going to need to be a lot of work on, you know, you had alluded to rerouting of traffic, like figuring out, okay, if we're going to close these, you know, there's an incentive, $100,000 to close it, but it probably, it might cost $100,000 just for the agency to do a study to figure out where to reroute the traffic. (laughs) So just throwing that out there. So, but anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't know the ins and out of the ins and outs of this, but at least increasing the incentive from $7,000. Yeah. Yeah. That's an improvement. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. (laughs) We're heading in the right direction. Um, Yes. I did see a study that was um, published by the Federal Highway Administration in September of 2020, where they interviewed or did some type of survey um, with some folks. And over and over again, they kept talking about how this set aside, this 50% set aside Mm -hmm. for the protective devices and that $7,500 incentive were not sufficient and made the program ineffective. So it's positive to see that through that study, they had those findings and then they addressed those findings through this infrastructure bill. Yeah. So I think there's something to be said when it comes to competing later for funding. Some agencies could look at, you know, weaving into their grant applications if it's applicable of, you know, if a project reduces the amount of vehicles traversing at grade railroad crossings, just as a side note, tip. So. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to move on to. (laughs) She's like, let me talk, people. (laughs) (laughs) With each of these programs, we could sit here for hours. I know. I know. I'm doing, I'm going too far in. I'm I'm going deeper dive than we need to be. So I'll let you talk. (laughs) No, that's fine. I probably will do that with some of these programs too. But um, the surface transportation block grant, that's perhaps one of the more flexible formula funding programs. Um, The biggest change for that is that it now has new population categories. And these population categories, I believe, is how the money was allocated among states. And now it was just two separate categories. So it would be allocated to communities that that had less than 5,000 residents and to communities that had more than 200,000 residents. But now there's two new categories, one for communities in between 5,000 and 50,000 residents, and one for communities that have between 50,000 to 200,000 residents. So I might not be fully understanding, but I think this is kind of touching on trying to ensure that funds are distributed amongst communities more fairly instead of funds always going to large cities or teeny tiny towns. Um, So just trying to make sure that more people have a fair share of the pot. The next programs I want to talk about is the National Highway Freight Program. And I think the biggest takeaway for this is that it increases funding for uh, freight intermodal and freight rail projects. I don't know a whole lot about this program in the first place, honestly. So I don't know 
how that program operated before, and I don't know a whole lot about freight. <laughs> but it just seems like it seems like perhaps it's trying to shift from just um, thinking about freight with like semi trucks, but also how it connects to other modes of shipping. Yeah, there's a whole inner. So there's a whole intermodal piece. And when we say intermodal and I, I'm going to give an example. So back in and and I'll also say that with COVID, people are really starting to see the impacts of supply chain and have a better understanding of what that is. And so when you order your package on Amazon, people got no idea what has to, what it has to go through to get there. So it used to be you could get your stuff in a couple of days and it still went the same way. It was still the same supply chain, but now things are backing up for a variety of different reasons. So an example, my nine year old son back before Halloween. Okay. So we're in January now, but back before Halloween, he wanted to order this little stuffed pumpkin. And it was $4 off of Amazon. And I'm like, I am not buying. No, we're not doing that. And he goes, what if I pay for it? Okay, it's only $4. And I was wondering, why is this so cheap? Okay, so it was coming over from China. So we had managed expectations that could take a couple of weeks. This is like a month before Halloween. It showed up two months later at Christmas. Okay, so, but what it had to go through to get there. So you have the, the supply chain, you have this stuffed pumpkin that's like the size of a hand. Why he won this, I don't know. And why it was $4, I don't know. But anyway, it's made over there, right? It gets put on a, it, you know, it goes from the manufacturing facility to a distri distribution facility by truck, potentially, or train, depending on how far it is, probably by truck. Then that makes its way over to uh, the port so it can be shipped, right? So then it's shipped over here. And we're in Atlanta, so a lot of the um, shipments come in through the Savannah port, okay? And it arrives over here, and then depending on how far it has to go, it either gets put on a drayage truck um, and then eventually makes it way its way by truck, by long-distance truck, so it goes from short haul to long haul potentially up here to our home in Atlanta. Or if it's a further distance, it gets put on a train, and then it goes from the train to the truck to, and then it, that truck, by the way, could end up taking it to a distribution center here. And then that still has to make it way by your little Amazon Prime van. Um, or maybe not Amazon Prime since it took two months, but your, your UPS truck in order to get here. All that to say is that there's like seven, eight, nine, ten steps to get that one little stuffed pumpkin to our house. Right. And so. The National Highway Freight Program is really aimed at focusing on infrastructure improvements that help facilitate that those intermodal connections. Um, and, and, and that's going to have a major impact on, in a positive way, over time on the supply chain. So I just wanted to add that. Yeah. And I'll just, I'll just add that, you know, I think... Not only the ports, but these intermodal yards are feeling these stresses um, from these supply chain backups and the increased demand. Uh, so one example here in Atlanta is Holsey Yard was vacated completely, which is one of the biggest intermodal yards in Metro Atlanta because CSX was moving their operations and they, they were moving their intermodal facilities. However, now it's being used as a temporary storage facility for the Savannah port because the Savannah port does not have enough room for all of the containers 
nor are they getting the number of trucks that they need to haul those containers. So they're moving them by rail up to Holsey Yard, and then they're sitting there until the trucks are available to come and pick them up. Um, so that's it just insane. Seems, yeah, yeah, it just seems to me, and and Holsey Yard is not the only one. This is happening yeah. across Georgia and probably across the U.S. But yeah. it just seems that this increased funding um, is really intended to help with these bo- bottlenecks and help prevent this supply chain issue from happening in the future. Thanks for giving context, because, um, <laughs> like I said, freight is not my uh, my wheelhouse. Yeah, Kirsten and I have had, we've worked on plenty of freight plans. <laughs> some other changes. I might try to go a little more quickly through some of these formula programs, because, like, there's so much to talk about. Mm-hmm. But to wrap up National Highway Freight Program, um, some other new eligibilities include modernization or rehabilitation of a lock, dam, or marine highway corridor, and also environmental mitigation and highway resiliency. And then the program also adds more miles for critical freight corridors, freight corridors, um, particularly for rural, critical rural freight corridors um so that's that's the short and sweet um is there anything you want to talk about with those or no keep going amber keep going okay the next program is the congestion mitigation and air quality improvement program the most um the biggest changes for this is that it adds eligibilities for zero admission zero emission vehicles um or making vehicles um, have lower emissions, and it also adds eligibility for shared micromobility. So that's like the Lime scooters and the shared e-bikes. It also adds funds for rail and transit operating assistance. And there's also a new equity prioritization aspect of the CMAC program. So Amber, does that mean that they're just like prioritizing projects under this program in areas that are historically disadvantaged, like low-income, minority, zero-car household areas? I anticipate that USDOT might define this a little more quickly in the coming months, but as it is right now, through the bill and everything else that's come out, it just says that it requires prioritizing disadvantaged communities or low-income populations when obligating funds to reduce PM2.5 emissions. Okay. So um so that's not super clear but it shows intent to at least ha- have an environmental justice lens. Yeah. Yeah. There's quite a few changes to the metropolitan planning program as well. So for example with uh they want more fair or representative um rep- NPO representation of the communities that they serve on their boards instead of having just like one major city represented on the boards. They want that to be a little more reflective of the communities they serve. And just, they also, I'm sorry, Amber, yes. real quick, just to clarify. So the MPO, the Metropolitan Planning Organization, is usually a regional entity that does some of the more regional planning efforts for what could end up being multiple counties and multiple jurisdictions within their boundary. And so they each are required to have a board. And a lot of times it may just be the city that serves as the county seat of that county, you know, major county that may be on the board and have voting rights. And so, but in reality, there could be 
15 different cities there and just making sure there's more equitable representation. So go ahead. Yes, exactly. The the infrastructure bill also now requires um, MPOs to, well, they encourage MPOs to use social media and other web-based tools to foster public participation uh, for their engagement for planning efforts. So that really is trying to encourage MPOs to uh, kind of, quote unquote, get with the times, like just mm-hmm. um, use different methods of engagement and um, try to be a little more um, meet people where they are. Yeah. The bill also wants to see consistent planning data if there is more than one MPO designated to an urbanized area. Um, so it wants, if there's more than one MPO in an urbanized area, it wants to make sure that those two MPOs have consistent planning data so that, um, maybe they're looking at like some of the same metrics or same scale with their planning. So there, there could be two MPOs that have their own discrete boundaries that like abut each other and they make up one very large urban area is what you're saying. I think yeah, so. Yeah, because they wouldn't overlap. So they have to be adjacent too. Okay. All right. Yeah. Which that's a little foreign to me coming from an MPO in Kansas. <laughs> um, <laughs> True. Um, the other changes to the Metropolitan Planning Program is that um, there's now requirements for the state DOT to support, well, for US DOT to support state and MPO travel demand data and modeling. I don't know what that would look like, but or how that's different than how it currently operates. But I guess the USDOT is going to give more guidance or more support when it comes to travel demand modeling. So first, let's just explain what we mean by travel demand modeling. Um, We do quite a bit of that, um, and we're actually quite known for it. And basically, that's forecasting traffic into the future. Uh, we're required um, as planners to forecast out often, you know, 20, well, federally required 20 plus years, which is like, you know, looking into a crystal ball. But um, so perhaps what they mean is getting more funding or um, technical support from the state to the MPOs. And because I will say this, there's a lot of it, travel demand modeling is a very technical skill set that's required. And a lot of the smaller MPOs do not have those technical expertise in-house. And so they may have to hire consultants to do it or get help from other other agencies such as the state. And and I will say that different states handle it differently. Some are more centralized than others. Some states actually do the modeling for the MPOs, like here in Georgia, when it comes to their long-range plan updates. But other states, like Florida, for instance, do not. They provide standards to the MPOs, but the MPOs themselves are expected to do their own modeling for their long-range plan updates. Thank you. Mm -hmm. The next, the last biggest change to the Metropolitan Planning Program is that now MPOs are required to use 2.5, at least 2.5% of their funds um, for multimodal considerations and efforts. Um, so again, that t- that gets back to this bill really focuses or is emphasizing uh, more multimodal focus. Mm-hmm. So now, that's a short and sweet recap of the existing formula programs, and there are four new surface transportation formula programs that um, we can dive into. This is so the exciting, first... I must say. But anyway, yes. go ahead. 
<laughs> no, you're good. Um, the one that probably a lot of people have their ears perked up about is the PROTECT program. PROTECT is an acronym for Promoting Resilient Operations for Transformative, Efficient, and Cost-Saving Transportation. And Hell of an acronym. I know. <laughs> yes. Thank God yes. they gave us an easy one. DOT. Yeah. <laughs> This program has both formula and competitive funds. So every state is going to receive some amount of these funds. And this program, both the formula and the discretionary funds, is geared towards that resiliency aspect that we talked about earlier. Like we said, this infrastructure bill is emphasizing resiliency as in, um, you know, making the transportation infrastructure able to withstand uh, changing climates and extreme weather events. And that's what this program is dedicated to address. It doesn't call out specific projects that it will fund. It seems a little, at the moment, it seems pretty broad and just willing to, able to fund any kind of project that the applicant can demonstrate is going to increase the resiliency of the transportation system. The next new program is the Carbon Reduction Program. And essentially, this program is exactly what it sounds like. It's every state is going to get a little bit of these funds, and it's geared towards reducing carbon emissions from the transportation sector. Um, so that might be trying to advance multimodal options, trying to promote teleworking, trying to promote EV charging, anything like that. Speaking of EV charging, the next new formula program is the National Electric Vehicle Formula Program. And this one is also kind of um, exactly how the name sounds. It's intended to help develop an EV charging, an electric vehicle charging network across the country. And Amber, as I understand it, is it correct? Is my understanding correct that a state has to have their own electric vehicle charging plan before they're actually eligible for this formula funding, let alone it be competitive for any discretionary funding. Is that right? From my understanding, yes, but it's not necessarily that it has to be like a transportation plan focused only on electric vehicles. Okay. It has to be some type of plan that lays out how are they going to use these funds. And then if they don't have that plan in place, then USDOT uh is able to take those funds and either distribute it to other communities directly within the state or to other states. Okay, so that makes sense. So USDOT is like, look, we'll give you the money as long as you have a very strategic way of how you're going to use it and where, you know, where are you going to put these EV charging stations? But you just have exactly. to have it laid out and documented and, and it be thoughtful. Okay. Yeah. Makes sense. And then the last surface transportation formula program we're going to talk about today is the bridge formula program. And basically, this program is intended to um, reduce bridges on the national highway system that are in poor condition or fair condition and at risk of falling into poor condition within three years. Or just falling in general. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Or like the Collapsing. bridge uh, between <laughs> Memphis and Arkansas that had a huge crack in it this last year. Oh, wow. So trying to uh, reduce situations like that. Yeah. Good program. <laughs> <laughs> important yeah, program. Yeah, important. Again, that's the short and sweet of these formula programs. The National Highway Performance Program and Bridge Investment Programs, 
the or the bridge formula program i apologize um are eligible for bundling so that's where you're able to take uh multiple projects and combine them into one large project um as we talked about the national electric vehicle formula program requires a plan in place of how um, states are going to use those funds but also the carbon reduction program the national highway freight program the highway safety improvement program and the national highway performance program also require um, plans in place and that projects implemented through those programs are aligned with those plans and then also the national highway freight program railway, highway crossings, and transportation alternatives, which we didn't talk about transportation alternatives, but that's a subset of the Surface Transportation Block Grant. Those all have um, certain projects and certain considerations that will allow up to a 100% federal share to fund those projects. So that means basically you don't have to have a local match for certain projects through those programs. And, and Amber, can you just provide some examples of what types of projects would be in the transportation alternatives program, like bike ped, you know? Yeah. So that might be um, a safe routes to school program, like um, a crosswalk in front of a school. That could be traffic calming, adding a bike lane, building sidewalks. So much lower cost options as well. In many cases, not always, but in many cases. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So let's move on to competitive funding or discretionary funding. For those of you who may not know, because this was new to me whenever I started researching this bill, discretionary funding is the same as competitive funding. Yes, it is. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) There are some changes to existing programs, and I'm sure these changes will be clarified in the coming months as NOFOs and more guidance comes out. But the first program that we'll talk about is RAISE. Within the infrastructure bill, the actual infrastructure bill, it's referred to as local and regional project assistance. With some new fact sheets coming from the White House this past week, they're still referring to it as RAISE. So I think we could keep calling it RAISE, which is, uh, I think it said for something like Rebuilding American Infrastructure for Sustainability and Equity. It's an acronym. It's always an acronym. That sounds about right. And then I believe under the Trump administration, it was known as BUILD. Under Obama, it was TIGER. It's all the same thing. Mm -hmm. Basically, it's large transportation projects. There's not a ton of explicit changes under this program, except it just adds a little more eligibilities. And the bill focuses more on some of the competitive priorities like safety, environmental sustainability, quality of life for rural and suburbanized areas, mobility and connectivity, um, collaboration with local communities, innovative technologies and techniques, project readiness. So that kind of gets back to the shovel ready Mm -hmm. that we talked about earlier and cost effectiveness. Yeah, and I I'll just say that um, I think one of the big like while the criteria and the way that they're going to evaluate these projects may not change very much, they have increased the funding amounts for these programs yeah. uh, pretty significantly, which which is great. I mean, I think that shows that these programs have been successful in the past. Um, so I'm I'm pleased to see that. Um, we've talked about raise is supposed to come out within the next three days. I mean, it, it could be out right now. We just don't know because we're mm-hmm. doing a podcast. Right. Um, <laughs> um, and so I think, you know, we'll get we'll get a good idea from that notice of funding 
what we can expect from some of these other programs as well. Yep. Yes, exactly. And same with the infra program, Infrastructure for Rebuilding America. Doesn't There's not a ton of changes to the program itself, but like Kristen said, um, it has a huge increase in funding. I believe it's like $8 billion. So, and that also, both of these programs fund significant transportation projects, raise a little more multimodal. Um, in fact, the last round of projects, it seems like this administration is funding more multimodal projects. Infra seems to have historically been more focused on freight and much yes. larger award amounts. There's, there's a limit on raise as to, or, there's a limit on raise as to how far up you can go for the award. And there's a minimum on infra to be eligible to even apply for the grant. So. Yes, exactly. But that's the short and sweet of those existing programs. And now we can get into the exciting new discretionary programs, which there's, there's so many to dive into. Um, I kind of organized this as breaking down these new programs into different topics, which all kind of ties back into the competitive priorities and the new focus areas of this bill that we talked about. But this first subsection of competitive grants that I want to talk about are programs for significant funding. Um, So the focus of these generally is just wanting to provide funds where there weren't funds available before. So this includes the Bridge Investment Program, this is pretty much exactly like the bridge formula program, except it's competitive funds. It has the same goal of reducing the number of bridges that are in poor or falling into poor condition. There's also the rural surface transportation program, and this is geared towards transportation projects in rural areas. So just making sure that rural communities are getting funds for transportation improvements and that all the transportation funds aren't getting funneled to urban areas. So I think this one is interesting. So just a little bit of background. Historically, for for the infra and the race programs, um, they have, it hasn't necessarily been a set aside, but they've said up to X amount will be um, distributed to rural areas, X amount will be urban areas. So I'm, I'm going to be curious once this notice of funding comes out if they still have that stipulation in the raise or if this new rural service program is to reduce that that stipulation. Good point. Another new significant funding program is the National Infrastructure Project Assistance. This program has been called Mega Projects. And I believe this is similar to Infra, but it wants to support regional or nationally significant projects that would otherwise be unachievable without federal assistance. So this is eligible to fund highways, bridges, highway freight, freight rail. It's similar to infra, but it's focused on projects that specifically would not be able to be implemented otherwise without this program's existence. What about transit? Like what if there was a high-speed rail corridor that traversed multiple states? Would something like that be eligible? Yeah, intercity passenger rail is also eligible through this program. Okay. But it specifically calls out intercity passenger rail. Okay. Mm -hmm. So I don't think it would be other types of transit capital projects. Unfortunately, I don't think it would be like um, 
intercity trail like trails that are regional and connect multiple cities um i think it's specifically focused on like highways and then yeah intercity passenger rail yeah freight rail major movement of people and goods yes yeah yeah makes sense Another new program, which there's not a ton of information about this one, but it's the multi-state freight corridor planning. And this is to give funding to freight new and existing freight compacts. So, you know, there it used to be called the I-95 Corridor Coalition, and now I believe it's called the Eastern Corridor Coalition. And, and that is a corridor coalition that goes along, uh, traverses multiple states, has multiple member states that have I-95 going up and down the eastern seaboard. And um, I would think something like that, and there are other multi-state corridor coalitions like that, but they have a big focus on freight, obviously. And um, so I would think Mm -hmm. something like that. And I will say they bring a lot of resources to the table to these states, a lot of benefits, and and the coordination is real impeccable. It's impeccable. So there's definitely benefits to it and data sharing and all kinds of stuff. Some other areas of focus through this infrastructure bill is uh, technology and innovation. And there's one discretionary program that is geared towards that specifically. It's towards like smart technology, smart cities. And it's called, it's another acronym, Strengthening Mobility and Revolutionizing Transportation, or SMART for short. And the eligible projects through this program are development and construction phase activities for innovative smart city and transportation technologies. So that could be anything like connected vehicles to sensor-based technology, drones, intelligent transportation systems, anything like that. Anything that is incorporating technology to the transportation system. Kelly, this is one that we need to keep our eye on, right? For sure. No doubt. And then... Another program that I I put into the uh, technology section is the Congestion Relief Program. I don't know if this is accurate, but at least in my mind, this is kind of similar to how like the Bridge Formula Program and the Bridge Investment Program are like the formula and competitive versions of the same thing. Mm-hmm. In my mind, the Congestion Relief Program is like, it's so similar to the Carbon Formula Program, uh, Carbon Reduction Program. And maybe that's just because they fund similar projects because a lot of the efforts to relieve congestion can also help reduce carbon emissions in the transportation sector. But this is a new um, competitive program aimed at reducing congestion in some of the most congested metropolitan areas. Uh, I'm sure Atlanta can expect a lot of funds for this program. And this could be this could fund anything from trying to shift drivers to non-peak times, um, shift drivers to other modes of transportation, invest in transit, um, tolls and pricing, any kind of strategy to help reduce congestion. So, and I would think if we're thinking about technology as it relates to congestion relief, I mean, there's a lot of different strategies as it relates to ITS or intelligent transportation systems. But, you know, I'm thinking of like signal, traffic signal projects that improve congestions, um, you know, um, enabling them to have communication so that they can communicate with other signals back to the transportation management center, which is kind of like, think about like the command center um, and even to vehicles um, and allow them to be more optimized and improve congestion that way. So different technologies like that as well, right? 
Yeah. Yes, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The next subset of competitive programs I want to talk about is um, programs that focus on safety. And there's quite a few programs that fall within this. The first we want to talk about is the Railroad Crossing Elimination Program. It's the competitive version of the Railway Highway Crossing Program, Formula Program. And this is essentially geared at the same thing of, like the name says, eliminating railroad crossings. But this is competitive funding for that. The next program is Active Transportation Infrastructure Investment. This is funds specifically for bike ped projects and recreational trails. And it has a focus on developing active transportation networks or active transportation spines or active transportation plans. And I want to call that out because it's um, it's nice to see that they want to fund a connected active transportation system instead of just like kind of plopping down sidewalks wherever um, and making sure that it's a usable system. The next program is the Safe Streets and Roads for All. Um, this is essentially funding Vision Zero or Toward Zero Deaths initiatives, um, planning and capital projects. The next program is Stopping Threats on Pedestrians. This one is kind of interesting, a little bit of an oddball one, at least in my mind, in that it's intended to fund bollard projects, like projects to install bollards to protect pedestrians from vehicles and acts of terrorism. <laughs> okay. <laughs> that, sounds, yeah. that sounds like something got tagged on to, yeah. this, to this bill. Yeah. Uh, but I think yeah. that's interesting. You know, I, I it sounds like, you know, you, this is a separate funding source to provide separated barriers for pedestrians and bicyclists from mm-hmm. vehicle users. So you know, in areas where you've got bike lanes, but it's just painted, you know, this may be a funding source to go back and add those uh, protective barriers. Yeah. 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 That's a good way to look at it. The next program is wildlife crossing safety. I totally think this is cool, but the bill has like a very surprising, in my mind, um, emphasis on wildlife crossing of Hmm. highways and roadways. Um, But I guess that's good because i Crashes due to like hitting deer and whatever is not a good time. So yeah, there's a whole dedicated pilot program for um, efforts to reduce uh, wildlife crossings or make those crossings safer and eliminate interactions between drivers and wildlife. Yeah, you know, when I lived in Denver many moons ago, I remember being fascinated by this because they take wildlife crossings seriously out there, and 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 I can understand why, but they actually. I remember along the some of the interstates, they would actually build, you know, they would build, um, you know, grade separated crossings for the wildlife, just for the wildlife so that they had safe passage um, to go from one side of the interstate to the other. If there was like a big, you know, field or something or woods or something like that. So it's pretty interesting. Yeah, I don't know how the animals know. That's what I was wondering. Yeah, how do they know? (laughs) That's probably a dumb question. Do do they put? Do they go out there and plant little food trails across (laughs) the little breadcrumbs they put across? I don't know. I'm sure there's a. So I've I've seen this for for turtles too, where like they will cut out holes in the Jersey barrier for turtles to be able to cross and get to the water. 
And I don't know how they cool. know to go through go through the holes. <laughs> like it's weird. <laughs> so totally not relevant, but <laughs> I heard so one day my son and I were riding our bikes down a paved trail and we saw a turtle crossing and it or it was in the middle and it was just there. And so we stopped and we wanted to move it to to safe, you know, shelter there. So we picked it up and we moved it off to the grass. Someone later told me that if you, or maybe my son read on the internet or something, and I'm like, is this true that apparently if you pick up a turtle and move it, it dies? Is uh, that true? Where does that come from? So. Yeah. Okay. I, I, I think that's, a, no, They're full I think of the internet lied to you. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I sons, hope that's not true. I know, because I was like, oh my God, we thought we were saving his life and we murdered it. <laughs> it can't be true. This makes no sense. So my son's like, well, mom, it was on the internet. I'm like, do you believe everything that's on the internet? Really? So I hope not. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Moving on. All right. <laughs> yeah. The next program, which I'm going to be brief with this, but um, is the Protect Discretionary Funds. Um, this has four separate competitive pools of money. So they have some money for plant resiliency planning specifically. They also have another program for um, resilience capital, pro- uh, capital projects. So... This could be like protective barriers or anything that um, any capital improvement that helps make the infrastructure more resilient to those um, extreme weather events and changing climates and all of that. There's also a pool of money for uh, funding evacuation routes. So that's um, that kind of gets more into emergency planning, but basically ensuring that whenever disaster does strike, whether that's a hurricane or a flood or a tornado or whatever, um, that people are able to get out of the community and also that EMS is able, emergency medical services are able to respond and effectively get to people in need in those situations. Yeah. So one example of that um, is the Georgia Department of Transportation um, has been doing modifications on state route or yeah, state route three. Nope. Nope. I-16 <laughs> going down towards Savannah. Um, what they've been doing is they've been cutting all of the trees back uh, as far as they can to the right-of-way lines. And this is um, a safety project for them to reduce the um, the risk of trees coming down on the interstate during weather events to Mm. make sure that the roads are cleared for those evacuation routes. So, you know, this funding could be used for something like that. Yeah, interesting. And also for uh, adding redundancy to evacuation routes, so making sure that communities don't have only one evacuation route, but in events where a tree falls or power line falls or whatever, um, there's multiple ways to get to safety. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good point. Or just congestion because everybody's trying to leave. Yeah. (laughs) The last part of the Protect Discretionary Program is Coastal Infrastructure Grants. And this funds highways, bridges, bike ped facilities, culverts, um, but is intended to enhance the resilience of infrastructure along the coast that are at a risk of um, weather events or um, rising sea levels. So... That's the short and sweet of the Protect Discretionary Funds. This next section of programs is going to focus more on environmental sustainability 
or just benefits to the environment broadly. The first is culvert removal, replacement, and restoration. This program also seems a little bit like an oddball because it's funding dedicated to improve fish passages. That is so odd to me. Like, yeah. But I don't know enough about, you know, under the sea. <laughs> I don't really, I don't know enough, but it does seem odd. But anyway, go yeah. ahead. It's another one of those things where, like, it's positive, but it yeah. just seems odd. Like, which legislator was this a passion project for? So this is, in the, in my limited engineering uh, <laughs> exposure, I went to a conference and this was a pretty major topic. Really? Hmm. About how important it is for roadway designers to take into consideration the drainage, the culverts, mm-hmm. um, and ensuring that you're not disturbing the natural habitat. Mm-hmm. So making sure that like your culverts are buried enough where there could be a natural bottom to the stream. Mm-hmm. And roadway designers and environmentalists are actually teaming up together on the design proactively to ensure that culverts are safe for aquatic life. Anyways, just a little tidbit. Yeah, that's interesting. (laughs) It's a good thing, though. I think the thing that makes that so odd is just it's not it's not a hot, trendy topic within transportation. Now, every time that comes up, I'm going to think about, like, finding Nemo or something like that. (laughs) I don't know why, but it just comes to my mind. But anyway, go ahead. The next environmentally focused grant program is reductions of truck emissions at port facilities. This funds exactly what it sounds like. It funds mm-hmm. any effort to reduce truck emissions or truck idling at ports. Cool. There's also the Grants for Charging and Fueling Infrastructure Program. This is intended to build out um, critical corridors for electric vehicle charging and alternative fueling. Mm-hmm. And this does focus not just on electric vehicle charging, but um, different types of alternative fuels and making sure that um, these charging and fueling stations are publicly accessible and create a network so that if you drive an EV, you can get to multiple places and you're not limited due to where charging stations or fueling stations are yeah it's aimed at reducing that what they call range anxiety you know for ev owners and afraid that they can only go so far and so maybe they won't purchase an electric vehicle because they're afraid they can't you know travel from city to city you know for example Mm -hmm. the next program is the healthy streets program uh this is dedicated towards um improving or increasing urban tree canopies, reducing the urban heat island effect, reducing flooding and in, in increasing the number of like impervious pavements in areas. Um, so that's kind of a unique program. Mm-hmm. These um, next two are the pollinator friendly practices on roadways, roadsides and highway rights of way. Don't know why they couldn't come up with an acronym for that one. <laughs> and uh the invasive plant elimination program. So this, these are both dedicated towards exactly what their names sound like, but along highways, or in my mind, I'm picturing like highway medians Mm -hmm. and kind of making those more purposeful and more harmonious with the surrounding environment. Okay. Yeah. It's kind of like the wildflower program that they have in many States Mm -hmm. and, you know, putting down flowers that, um, 
attract bees. Yep. Yeah. And this last section of discretionary programs is um, focused on access. The first is the all stations accessibility. This is the, I think, the only transit program we've talked about on this call, but this is dedicated towards, um, I believe it's called legacy transit stations and making those more ADA accessible. Okay. So that might be um, building elevators at those stations. Right, right. Or having signage or the tactile surfaces mm -hmm. and so on. Okay. And then the next is the reconnecting communities. This one I think is really exciting, uh, in my opinion. It's And it has two pools of funding, one for planning and one for construction. And this program is geared towards identifying transportation facilities that are barriers in communities. So that might be like a highway that divides a community or a railway that divides a community and trying to either like eliminate that barrier or construct something to better connect the community despite that barrier. So there's planning and capital construction funds for that. Unfortunately, this um, funding pool is a lot smaller than some advocates had wanted. It's only $1 billion. So for trying to reroute or take out a transportation barrier, like $1 billion is not a, a lot of money. Yeah. Um, Just for, for our listener, that might cover one to four projects. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> like <laughs> each one is going to cost several hundred million dollars, depending on what it is. I mean, some may not be quite that much, but if you're trying to build a bridge, for instance, a bridge crossing over, you know, a very wide interstate in an area that's already very well developed along the interstate. I mean, it's it's challenging and very costly. The right of way yes. alone, you know, the cost to purchase the property surrounding. So anyway. Yeah. But I think, well, there's two things that I want to bring up is there's talk that if that Build Back Better bill that we touched on earlier gets passed, it might have additional funding for this program. No promises. Okay. The bill hasn't been passed yet, but I've heard talk about that. And then also, um, at least in my opinion, how I view this is that there might be a small, like $1 billion only for the next five years for this program. But the fact that this program is included, I think is going to help get this concept in transportation yeah. planners' minds and also shows the potential for more funds to be available for this program in the future. Agreed. It's after... setting a precedent. Yeah. Yes, yeah. exactly. Um, so despite the small amount of funding, still really exciting to see. So that is a quick run through of all the new surface transportation so grant programs. <laughs> but I will tell you, I have learned so much today. And I think that we're going to need to require everyone that works for us to listen to this particular episode because it's, it's so jam-packed with good information in a succinct way. Yeah. And Amber, you did such a great job going through and really understanding these programs and able to communicate it in a way that... Um, we can all understand. So uh, you may have just designated yourself as our government relations liaison. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> <laughs> Didn't know I'd be adding that to my yeah, yeah. <laughs> Definitely our IIJA expert. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad that shows because I feel like I've spent hundreds of hours working on this and 
combing through it. So yeah. I'm glad it's I'm glad some of it's coming through my it mind. It is coming through for sure. Yeah. So Amber, you know, to kind of wrap all of this up, um, what do you think are like three key takeaways for people listening to this when thinking about this new infrastructure bill? Hmm. I think the first is that the success of this bill is going to hinge on how willing transportation planners at all levels of government are willing to think outside of the box and not just do the same old thing right. and fund the same old projects. Yeah, I think that's that shows with how the bill is written. That shows with how USDOT funded the last round of raise projects. So I think that's the first key takeaway. The second, I would say, is um, hmm, I don't, I don't even know how to word this. I feel like I'm unprepared, even though I'm literally prepared. <laughs> well, I mean, I'll I'll jump in. I think one of the key takeaways for me is that because there are so many new programs, if you're a project sponsor and you're thinking about trying to go after funding, you really need to put um a detailed strategy in place. And um, that's my shameless plug for um, previewing our next episode, which we will (laughs) be talking about putting together a strategic funding strategy, but um, putting that strategy together and putting it together early and preparing for these programs and doing the upfront work. So, yeah. 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 So like, I think with what you're saying is those those studies beforehand and getting those projects to that shovel ready stage. Yeah. Yeah. And having the data to back up those projects. Also, I don't this is not my original thought, but I saw a webinar yesterday and I thought they brought up a great idea. So I want to reiterate it here. A lot of these new programs, like we're kind of beating you over the head with this at this point, or at least I am, of like these new programs don't necessarily have a lot of funds. Most of the transportation funds are going to those existing programs. And part of that is for a good reason. They're already existing. But I don't want transportation planners to be discouraged by the low amount of funds in the new programs because, like we said earlier, like these programs are precedents. Um, it can also sprinkle ideas in transportation planners' mind, but even if, like, they shouldn't look at grant programs and be like, oh, there's only $1 billion for reconnecting communities. But they can go after other programs um, for their project. So if you want to fund an active transportation project, you don't have to only go after active transportation investment program. There's other programs that you can go after to still achieve those goals. Yeah. So again, that kind of also gets back to transportation planners getting creative. So it sounds like there's the the three key takeaways, if we were to distill them down, are, okay, there's a lot more money, but that's mostly towards the existing programs. And for the new programs, even if it's a smaller amount of money, it's setting a precedent for potentially more in the future. Um, There is a shift in priority. Number two would be a shift in priorities for, you know, being competitiveness. And so changing your mindset as to how you prioritize projects. And then the third would be prepare for these opportunities early by developing a solid funding strategy, particularly as it relates to discretionary funding or, you know, competitive grants. Does that sound about right? Yes. Yeah. Yes. Well, Kelly, Amber, I think this has been awesome. I know. But I think we need to wrap it up. 
I know. I know. Yes. We're actually, <laughs> so just as a friendly reminder for everybody, we, for those of you that are nationally certified through the American Institute of Certified Planners, such as ourselves, um, AICP, we are a provider of the AICP Certification Maintenance CM Professional Credits Program. And I actually think that because we went a little more than planned, you know, folks might get 1.25 credits as opposed to one credit. So bonus. Um, but anyway, so check us out. Um, if you have um, your AICP and you've listened to this podcast, be sure to log your credits at planning.org through the American Planning Association website. And um, all you have to do is search for Modern Mobility Partners and in quotes and all of our episodes come up, including this one. Uh, we appreciate uh, Amber coming in and being a fabulous uh, guest speaker or host for us. She did a fantastic job. Great job. Yes, fantastic job. Um, like I said, Amber's going to be our new IIJA national expert. And <laughs> um, so if you want to learn more about how our firm, Modern Mobility Partners, can help, you can find us at modernmobilitypartners.com. And we thank you for tuning in and don't forget to subscribe and even better review our podcast. You can find us on any of your podcast listening apps, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, et cetera. And with that, we are over and out. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to Modern Mobility. If you work for an organization that has implemented innovative and practical solutions to modern day transportation challenges and are interested in being on our podcast, email us at podcast at modernmobilitypartners.com. Want to learn more about our consulting services? Check us out at modernmobilitypartners.com. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast.